to The First Incision, a podcast from the Christian Medical Fellowship where we explore topics at the interface of faith and healthcare that affect our Christian lives in today's world. We are your hosts for today. So my name is Sally. And I'm Ben. And we're two London-based junior doctors. And today we are going to be looking at the topic of strikes, specifically should Christian doctors strike? Now, I'm sure everyone is aware uh, that on Monday, uh, the BMA released the uh, results for its ballot on industrial action. And there was a huge majority, uh, 98% in favour of strikes. And just to caveat before we begin, we are definitely not qualified to produce any grand conclusions. Um, We just hope that it will help stimulate some discussion with those around you and help you pray about this issue, which is really big and is affecting all of us right now. Good expectation setting there. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks. Yeah. And with that, before we jump into the nitty gritty of this huge result and what it might mean in the coming weeks and months, maybe we should take a step back and look at the picture as a whole. What's been going on around the country in the last few months or even last few years in terms of industrial action? Um, Ben, do you want to start us off? Sure. So uh, let's begin uh, by looking at the national picture and uh, what's been going on uh, around the country. Uh, As I'm sure everyone knows, over the last few months, uh, nearly everyone, it seems, has been going on strike. So in this month in February uh, this year, uh, we are set to have strikes across uh, the teaching profession, university staff, civil servants, rail and bus workers, nurses, paramedics, uh, physios. um, And that's just this month. I'm sorry, I don't know about you, but I've I've run into a few strikes um, in in my daily life. How has your life been affected by the strikes? Yeah, I I mean, I don't think anyone can say they've not been affected by the strikes. I think I'm relatively lucky. I live very close to my workplace. I can walk to work, but I felt national frustration at different days of the month where all these strikes come together and different things grind to a halt at any one time. I'm a BBC News person and I've noticed that they've got like a sort of strike tracker so that you can put in the day of the month and it will tell you who's going to be striking that day. So you can kind of try and navigate your world around that. Um, but that's just mad. I've never seen that before. Yeah. And it's filling the conversations, um, both amongst medical staff and just generally. Like, I mean, there's a, a, a lot, I know a lot of people who who are in the professions that have, have decided to strike or that are balloting to strike. It seems to be one of the things that unites um, people from all sorts of different uh, walks of life and different professions and different stages of life. Um and I think it's, it's worth mentioning that although there is a lot of uh, diversity amongst those who are striking, they're all essentially striking over the same thing, and that's pay. Um, so, uh, and particularly pay in the context of rising inflation. So, in the UK, uh, inflation stands at around ten percent. I don't pretend to know much about economics. I don't know about you, Sally, um, but from what I understand, inflation is at around ten percent. Um, but wages have not risen in line with inflation. Uh, and so everything's just getting more expensive whilst wages don't increase as well. And so we end up in uh, the so-called cost of living crisis. And again, no one is immune from this. And I think what's really struck me is like this frustration that's happening nationally as people are striking literally to kind of put food on the table to avoid using food banks to heat their homes is actually the government hasn't really budged on much. So they're saying they can't afford it, they're giving pay rises will exacerbate inflation. And then actually, yeah, from my very limited perspective, it seems like most of the groups that have had these strikes so far have not actually been very successful in getting what they want. 
Although there are there are a couple of exceptions, but it, it very much like, I very much agree that in most cases the government hasn't budged. But there are at least I can think of two. So back in October, the Criminal Barristers Association uh, went on an, like an indefinite strike. So they said we're not working until you give us a pay rise. Um, and eventually that uh, strike was ended uh, when the Department of Justice gave them a 15% uh, pay rise, which they agreed on. Um, and then very recently, um, the Fire Brigades uh, Union, uh, that represents firefighters, um, they postponed their strike that they were meant to have um, after they were offered a 7% pay increase. Uh, and the strike might still go ahead, but they're currently putting that 7% offer to the ballot. Uh, but I agree, in the main, um, the government has been pretty bullish in their approach to these strikes. That's slightly embarrassing, actually, because my flatmate is a criminal barrister. So I do very much remember the criminal barrister strike and and the resultant award of 15% pay. It was it was a really interesting experience to be living with her at the time. And I actually really hope she never listens to this and realises that I completely wiped that from my memory already. But moving on. To basically publicise this podcast as minimally as possible. Yeah, if everyone can just avoid telling my flatmate, that would be great. Okay, cool. We'll, we'll, I, I, I will make a note. Um, so do, you, do you want to name her? So we, actually, no, maybe not. Um, no, so I think we should let's I move think we on. Should move on. <laughs> <laughs> so we've now looked at the big national picture when it comes to industrial action. Uh, shall we talk about the BMA now, um, and particularly the results that came in uh, on Monday in favour of strike action? Uh, Sally, do you want to take us through the results? Uh, yeah, sure. I I can give it a go. I've got my BMA email up in front of me. So as we all know, the uh, vote closed um, midday on Monday, and we got the results uh, later, Monday evening. So the number of people that voted was 36,955. And that was around 77%, 77 77.49% of total people who could have voted. So quite a strong turnout, I think we'll all agree. And as we've already alluded to, uh, the huge majority voted in favour of strike actions. So that was 36,218 people voted yes, which was 98.06% in favour, with 716 people voting no, so 1.94% voting not in favour of industrial action. Yeah, and it was a, a massive result. Um uh, just to put it into some sort of context, so it was a 98% vote in favour of striking, so only 2% of people uh, voted against striking. Um, and uh, to put that into context, uh, that is the same figure uh, as the percentage of the UK electorate who voted for the Brexit party in the 2019 general election. Um, so that's the kind of uh, majority we're talking about. Um, and uh, similarly, uh, it's it might be worth um, kind of comparing it a little bit to the 2016 um, ballot, which was a more or less a, a pretty similar uh, turnout and similar results. So, um, as we said uh, this time around, we had a 77.5 percent turnout in 2016. It was 68 uh, percent turnout, so a little bit less. Um, and uh, the 98 percent vote in favour uh, was basically the same um, in 2016. And in 2016, the 98 percent vote in favour of striking turned into about a 90 percent walkout on uh, the initial strikes. Uh, so there were some people who voted for strike action but didn't walk out. Uh, but I think they'll probably include people who weren't uh, scheduled to work those days. Um, so a very high uh, turnout, a very high uh, proportion of uh, vote in favour, and what will likely be a very high uh, withdrawal of services uh, on the strike days. Uh, were you surprised by the results, Ali? 
it is surprising to me because I didn't know any of the stats of the 2016 um, votes. Um, I wasn't practicing medicine then, just going to out my age. Um, so I hadn't really ever looked that up. I knew that there was majority. I knew that industrial action happened, but I hadn't realised it was so similar. I don't know. I, I talked to lots of people before the voting. I, I guess I thought I had a pretty good idea of what everyone was saying, um, kind of in my uh, social circle, if you like. But 98%, huge majority. And I think I was surprised by the turnout, maybe, maybe even slightly more of the majority, because I definitely had a lot of friends that were on the on the fence and weren't even sure about voting at all. So I think all of it was surprising for me. But then I think back to, you know, receiving that orange envelope and seeing the big tick um, on the front of it. I think just receiving the sort of ballot paper in itself, there was a lot of peer pressure to vote yes. So maybe it's not so surprising. Yeah, true. Uh, I think the the BMA uh, spent a lot of uh, effort uh, campaigning to us uh, to persuade us to vote uh, for strike action. Um, it was actually an interesting point that um, on the big uh, in big writing on the envelope of the ballot paper, it said "vote yes" uh, for uh, full pay restoration. Um, so it was very clear that even though they were polling us for our opinion, they clearly had an agenda. They clearly wanted us to vote in favour um, of strike action. Um, I think that feeling of it was my responsibility to vote or it's my duty to vote. I think it was getting yeah that that bright orange envelope and and feeling like there was an expectation that I should have a strong opinion on it because the BMA definitely did, and I felt to have an, a strong opinion against the BMA. I have to have like a lot of reasoning behind that. It, it, I don't know, it it sparked something in me that I don't usually feel like I have much capacity to have strong feelings after work, but that envelope did and I couldn't quite work out what I was feeling. It definitely sparked something. It might have not been helped by the fact that I live in a flat, which has obviously had quite a few doctors live in it before because I got no fewer than five of these orange envelopes. Um, obviously, I only opened and voted with the one addressed to me, um, but it was quite an experience to have them all come through the door on the same day. <laughs> Nice. Um, so I, on that note, I think it's worth perhaps just unpicking a little bit the arguments that the BMA is making. And from my reading of the situation, and, and this is just my opinion, uh, there seems to be two arguments that the BMA is making in favour of strike action. And interestingly, they seem to be making different arguments to different people. Uh, so, for example, um, I think the main argument that the BMA is making to the public about why doctors should strike is that these strikes are all about patient care and patient safety. Uh, so, for example, uh, this is Ajahn Singh, uh, who is the BMA Junior Doctors Chair uh, for North Thames, uh, speaking to Sky News a couple of days ago. These patients three or four years ago, if we'd seen them, would have treated them, that have gone home, that have experienced wedding anniversaries, birthdays, grandchildren going up, Christmases. Now they come into a hospital and it's the last thing they do because there simply isn't enough of us there. And if they say that they want to restore the NHS as they do, then it starts with restoring the wages of the professionals that work in the NHS. So the argument here is that there's a huge number of problems facing the NHS, and a lot of these problems could be remedied, at least in part, by preventing this mass exodus of doctors leaving the NHS. So whether these be A&E wait times or clinic wait times or bed occupancy or staff morale, one of the key ways that we can resolve or at least begin to remedy some of these problems is by retaining NHS staff. 
rather than uh, losing them to the private sector or abroad or to non-medical jobs entirely. And one of the ways that you retain staff, the argument goes, is by paying them more. And, and so the, the, uh, the BMA basically says the short-term negative effects of the strike will be offset by the long-term benefits uh, to patients of having a properly staffed NHS. It's all about patients. And I don't know what you make of that. Well, it's difficult because, you know, when you kind of phrase it like that, it's very persuasive and I you know that's what I see when I read the news and I look at the papers there's all these massive problems in the NHS and and this is a really attractive way to think oh this is a one one shot way of, of kind of improving all of that in one go just retain the staff and everything will get better but that is not what I see when I get this piece of paper through the door asking me to tick yes or no I feel like that's being projected outwards and actually the messages I've getting in all of this BMA mm. correspondence and these emails it's it's quite different and it, it's quite a lot more blunt i don't know what, what you would say yeah no you agree yeah because i think that it is a powerful argument but interesting that's not the argument the bma makes in its own paperwork to members mm. um so if you read um as i did the uh the, the whole um the all kind of four pages of stuff in all your spare the, time the ballot, then, you know uh, in, all, in all my spare time when i'm not podcasting <laughs> Um, I mean, I can only I only found one mention of the word patience in all of their documents. Mm. And I was in a quote from a GP uh, basically saying that they supported the strike um, because the BMA to its members is not making the argument based on patient safety. Rather, the argument that the BMA is making is around identity, is around the identity of how much doctors are worth um so if you um have a read of the covering letter that came with the ballot um let me just just read you a bit from it uh, this is what they say after working tirelessly and selflessly throughout the pandemic it is no surprise that morale amongst junior doctors um our junior doctor members has plummeted the public showed appreciation at the time sadly the government has not backed their hollow thanks with material recognition of your value to the country's health in 2022 no junior doctor, whether you are an FY1 or registrar, is worth less than they were in 2008, which is why the BMA is determined to fight with you for full pay restoration, end quote. So the BMA's argument to doctors is not about patients. It's about how much you are worth. It's about what's your value as a person, as a doctor. Um, and so specifically how we're not worth less than we were in, uh, in 2008. I mean, that's such strong language, isn't it? That material recognition of your value to the country's health in 2022, it's quite militant. And it makes me feel like, oh, if I have anything else that I value in my life, then that's wrong because I should be thinking about the country's health and my part to play in it. And therefore how much I am I'm worth to you and how much I should be remunerated for that. Well, yeah, and the worth is linked to pay, right? Your worth as a human being is linked to how much you're paid. Mm. And I think if you think about that for long enough, you realise that's actually a really um, superficial and, and fragile place to put your identity. And on that note, I think we're probably ready for a break. We've talked about the results. We've talked about the context of industrial action, talked about the BMA. And when we come back from the break, we're going to be looking at one question only. Should Christian doctors strike? Sounds good. See you in a moment.
welcome back. In this part, we're going to be um, exploring the specific question of how we as Christian medics should act, uh, should respond to our strike days, should Christian doctors strike. I think that the first thing to to mention before we kind of dive into the arguments for and against uh, Christian striking is to kind of look more broadly at the history of this. The modern welfare state, as we know it, uh, was founded by um, the Archbishop of Canterbury in the 1940s, a guy called William Temple, um, who wrote this book called Christianity and Social Order. And one of his key ideas uh, in Christianity and Social Order, based on his Christian theology, was that uh, workers, labourers, should have a voice within their large institutions. And so he, uh, within his frameworks of the welfare state, had at um, at their centre the rights to associate, uh, to unionise and to have a voice in the running of uh, their institutions. And uh, it's because of Temple and others that Christians generally have been in favour of uh, unionisation and of uh, workers' rights. Um, and that's not to say uh, they've been in favour necessarily of strikes, but the broad principle, I think, is that we as Christians um, should be in favour of workers uh, having rights and having those rights championed by those who have power and who have a voice. Um, the other thing that I think is probably worth mentioning uh, before we dig into the arguments is that you see in the New Testament uh, quite often Christians, uh, and particularly Christian missionaries, utilizing their legal rights uh, in order to further their missions. Uh, so, for example, in the book of Acts, we see the Apostle Paul repeatedly standing on his legal rights um, in order to further the gospel. So in Acts 16, in Philippi, Paul gets thrown into prison and then demands a fair trial. Um, as he was a uh, as was his right as a Roman citizen, uh, or in Acts twenty two, uh, Paul prevents the soldiers from flogging him again by appealing to his protections as a Roman citizen, um, and then the Book of Acts ends uh, with Paul on a ship to Rome, having used his right to demand trial before Caesar, and so I think there is a good biblical argument can be made for Christians using their legal rights in order to further their uh, to further their goals. Um, and I think that would apply to strike action. Strikes in principle, I don't think are, are wrong. The question is, is it the right decision in a particular context? Yeah, I think it's really interesting to reflect on what we see Paul doing in Acts in terms of, yeah, using his rights at the time. It's something I've always loved about that narrative where you can trace back and, and see where did Paul maybe submit to authority and where did he subvert? I'm going to share with the whole audience that in our notes, Ben has got a quote from a John Stott book. And I know how much Ben loves John Stott. So I feel like he should also um, share this quote with everyone because in the 1980s, John Stott wrote a book called Issues Facing Christians Today, could argue slightly outdated today, today, but still really relevant to what we're talking about now. <laughs> a little bit harsh. He's been dead for a little while. <laughs> I, I'm just saying. I don't think he could, don't think he could update it. <laughs> well, you know, what I'm saying is, Ben, I think you should share the quote because I think it's really good. And I think you shouldn't hide how much you love John Stott. That's all I'm saying. Also, you have just revealed that this is partly scripted. I think most people knew that by now. <laughs> okay, fair enough. Um, uh, yeah, uh, Issues Facing Christians Today is a brilliant book. And actually, any um, 
topic that is kind of contemporary and ethical, I usually go to that book to see if there's a chapter on it. Um, this is what he says in his chapter uh, on labor relations. Uh, Decision-making is a basic right of human beings, an essential component of human dignity. In the West, we now take political democracy for granted and are grateful to those who sh uh, struggled long to secure universal suffrage so that ordinary citizens might share in governing their country and in making laws that they are required to obey. Is the propriety of industrial democracy not equally self-evident? So he basically draws the parallel between suffrage and the right to vote, with the rights of workers to determine the laws and regulations that, that govern their institution. And this is all grounded in, in human dignity as found in, in uh, Genesis 1. There we go. I, I mean, I think everyone's just going to be relieved then that we do have some scripting going on because, you know, due diligence and, and all that. But <laughs> now, now we've kind of looked at industrial action through different forms, uh, sort of through the history of, of Christian faith and believers. What about right now? What are the arguments for and against rights for me as a junior doctor who's a Christian and wants to serve my God in this situation? Should we start with against? Is that easiest? Yeah. What, what, what do you start off? What do you think are the strongest arguments against striking? So I think the thing I feel most conflicted about is this issue of patient safety, which we have already touched on conversely, because we're saying one of the reasons for striking is this kind of long-term retention of staff and therefore long-term improved outcomes for patients. However, I think there's some concerns around the short-term impact of these strikes, there's a widespread consensus about the 2016 junior doctor strikes. I admit that actually morbidity and mortality remained fairly similar or perhaps a little bit better because there was senior input top down to cover those strikes in 2016. However, we're talking about something quite different now, right? We're talking about a 72 hour walkout and we're talking about potentially withdrawal of junior doctors from out of hour services and emergency care. And that's different from the 2016 uh, strikes because uh, the 2016 strikes were um, four individual strikes that lasted 24 to 48 hours and didn't include the withdrawing of out-of-hours cover. And actually only one of those four strikes included withdrawing emergency care. So this is really different now uh, than it was in 2016. Exactly. And although, yes, at the moment, I think the BMA are using some data from 2016 strikes to show that potentially there were no immediate patient safety concerns around those strikes. When you look at sort of broader medical literature about healthcare worker strikes through history and across the world, it's actually quite more of a negative picture that we're seeing. And what I found very interesting is that there's currently a BMJ um, article that's been published about a protocol for a meta-analysis of the effect of healthcare worker strikes on patient outcomes that's due to be published in 2023. Essentially, what I'm saying is this is obviously a moral and ethical dilemma for someone with a faith or without a faith. But I suppose the difference is for us, and is that as Christians, I think we'd agree that human life is a overriding value. But the problem is we, at the moment, can't say based on evidence exactly how much harm will be caused by a short-term strike, even a short-term strike that is 72 hours long and involves out-of-hours care, versus long-term workforce issues in the NHS we can't say that we can only make educated guesses but the fact that even it's on the table as a guess that 
this could cause patient harm, this could affect human life, is a big concern for me. Mm. And and actually, as Christians, the call is even higher than that. We're called to lay down our lives for the sake of others. So Philippians 2, verse 3 and 4, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, rather in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. So, you know, as, as doctors, we're committed to patient safety, but as Christians, we're committed to sacrificing ourselves for the sake of others. I completely agree. And again, there's so many biblical examples of this. You've just got to look at the Good Samaritan being a really easy analogy to make here. The Good Samaritan's care goes above and beyond. He puts himself in danger and out of pocket for care of another. Yeah. And, and I suppose, so the question that we have to ask is, are we willing to disrupt patient care and potentially um, risk patient safety for our own financial gain? Because that's the question. Mm. And how does that square with this call to lay down our lives for the sake of others, to love our enemies, to sacrifice for others as Christ sacrificed for us? It's really difficult. Exactly. And you can't really pull those two apart, thinking about, is it safe to do this in the short term? And also, what are we doing it for? What are our motivations there? Are we just listening too much to the culture of um, entitlement and culture of immediate reward and immediate gain, a culture of self-fulfillment being the idol in, and not listening to what we know, what we know Jesus did for us and what we have been called to do in terms of sacrificing, yeah, laying down our lives for others. What What does that look like for us in today's culture? And I think linked to that is this emphasis that we've already touched on about or, or on identity, because mm. um, you know the BMA says that our identity is essentially tied to how much we earn. And I'm sorry, but I disagree. I disagree just on a on, on a human level. Like really, as as is the amount we're worth based on our pay. Is, is a millionaire worth more than someone who's homeless and 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 unemployed? I mean, really. And of course, as Christians, we believe that our identity is not tied to our salary or our job or our status, but on who we are in Christ. And that my identity is infinitely valuable, whether I am a millionaire or if I lose my job tomorrow. And so, you know, when the BMA asks, are you worth 26% less than you were in 2018? My answer is I, I'm not worth what my pay is <laughs> like is is my pay is not relevant uh to my identity to my worth or at least it shouldn't be um and so you know i don't think this is a particularly strong argument uh, from the bma on why we should strike i don't think no i i, com- I completely agree I, I think that that phrase my worth is not in my pay is one again that is so hard to hold on to in, in the times we live in but it's so crucial and I don't know. I think, but I do want to acknowledge that I'm I'm not saying that our working conditions are okay at the moment. But going back to who we are, who we are in Christ and what Christ has done for us, I guess another motivation I recognize in myself when I consider industrial action, when I consider strike action, is I'm seeking justice. I don't know if that's how you feel. I'm seeking justice for every terrible night shift I've done, for every paycheck <laughs> that I got that I didn't think was quite enough, for every holiday I couldn't go on. Every time, you know, my friends in the private sector were able to afford things, I, I, I can't. You know, I, 
a part of me does really want justice for that. I don't, is, is that just me then? Am I just asking? Is, is, is this podcast own? just like a, a group therapy session now? Is this, it's is turning this into one, and yeah. I'm not really sure how I feel about it. But um, this just, is a safe just, space. This is hope, uh, what we say doesn't leave these walls. I, I think that's I think that's that's not true, but I'm hoping for some grace out there, guys. That's that's all and um, that's all I'm gonna say on that topic. Um but yeah, am I seeking justice um through industrial action? And therefore, what am I saying about my identity and where I'm putting my trust and where I'm putting my eternity? Essentially, mm. we are children of God and Christ was dealt the ultimate unjust hand, but entrusted himself to him who judges justly as Christians as Christ followers we know that God's whole sovereignty and will judge the world in righteousness so surely our method of seeking justice for whatever hand we felt we've been dealt it it should look different to the rest of the world Mm. and I'm not sure that it does at the moment Mm. in these discussions around industrial action yeah and I suppose is it is it justice or is it vengeance is it that we're Mm. trying to seek something that is of a higher moral good or are we just trying to stick it to the managers or stick it to the politicians that makes me feel really uncomfortable which is probably a sign right that I do just kind of want to stick it to the politicians and (laughs) I do want vengeance like that that is a driver for me and that's that's not something I like when I recognize it Mm. we talk quite a bit I think on on the arguments against striking shall we go on to what we think the strongest arguments in favor of striking are yes and I think maybe we should reiterate here we we don't we don't mean to come down the conclusion on any side. This is just an open discussion that we hope will help you guys have more discussions outside of a podcast. Space. Yeah. And um I'm I think I'm probably comfortable in saying that we're not gonna say how we voted, but we both voted differently um in, 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 in the strikes. And so we're gonna try be as balanced as we can. Um so arguments in favor of striking. Um uh, so perhaps I can kick this kick this one off. Yeah, go um, for it. Which I think uh, and it's, it's basically going back to the the um, the clip that we ha- had from uh, Arjun Singh, the BMA chair, uh, which is that strikes. The argument is that strikes are necessary for the long term health of the NHS. So, as Christians, we are called uh, to love and serve God in the place we are now, but also that we are to plan for the future and play the long game. Uh, so, for example. Uh, if you look at Joseph in Genesis, one of the ways that God works through Genesis is to enable Joseph to help Egypt prepare for the seven years of coming famine. Now, I think that that story is uh, primarily about trusting God, uh, but it, I think there is also something to say about how we are to be wise and discerning about what we have. Uh, uh, we're to be wise and discerning with what we have now in order to prepare for what is to come. And the fact is, right now, the NHS is not in a good place. Uh, you know, Keir Starmer has this phrase of the NHS is not on its knees, it's on its face. And he, I think, mm. has a point. You know, A&E wait times are at record highs. Outpatient wait lists are at record highs. Burnout amongst doctors is at record highs. And all of these problems are due, at least in part, to staff shortages. People... And it's not necessarily that we're not training enough doctors, is that staff are leaving, are leaving to go to Australia, New Zealand, or go into the private sector or to leave medicine altogether. I mean, I don't know about you, but I've got loads of friends who've who've gone down all three of those paths. Yeah, 100%. And I was thinking about this the other day, and it's quite a sad reflection, but 
I remember starting medical school and I'm going to out my age. I started medical school in 2015. Okay. And I, I remember meeting <laughs> final years and they, you know, they seemed so adult to me. They were just impossibly cool. And they were like basically doctors in my mind. And when I started medical school in 2015, my perspective was that all these families, they were like buzzing to get out there and be doctors. They had all these big dreams. They wanted to be cardiothoracic surgeons or whatever it was. And they talked endlessly about it. They joined societies. They were really motivated about working for the NHS. And then fast forward, when I graduated medical school in 2021, at least a quarter of my friends had made these kind of like, you know, backup non-medical career plans for doing electives in alternative industries. And now I'm F2, you know, I'm I'm doing an F3. I actually don't know anyone that's close to me that's applying straight into a specialty training program. Mm. Everyone I know is doing some form of an F3. And that's not to say they're not working for the NHS in some capacity. A lot of them are. But again, I would say about half of them are planning to go to Australia and New Zealand or not take up, you know, kind of a fixed position of any kind because it's just, it's it's a really stressful job. And there are other options out there that can look more attractive and clearly it's not just about pay <clears throat> like mm. uh, i think that there is a lot to be said about uh, working conditions yeah um about kind of the parts of our job that everyone hates the fact that it's really hard to get annual leave the fact that uh shifts are really um awkward the fact that mm. uh, there is cultures in the nhs that we are, can do a whole podcast be... and the things wrong with our job but maybe uh, we shouldn't okay sure <laughs> <laughs> group therapy number two um <laughs> but i think a large part of it you know, is down to pay and mm. you want to attract and retain the best staff the staff that have been trained you gotta pay them what they're mm. what they're due and i think ultimately um this is about long-term patient care mm. uh, and if you want to have a a nhs that is there providing good patient care in the long run we've got to invest now in retaining staff and I think for me, that is the strongest argument in favor of striking, that we need to protect the health of the NHS in the long run. And one of the key, most important ways we can do that is by paying staff so that they stick around. I do also think it's probably worth mentioning um, the uh, minimum service level bill, uh, which the government has just pushed through Parliament. Um those who don't know, uh, this uh, bill uh, that has has um, been voted uh, successfully through um, the House of Commons essentially allows the Secretary of State to set minimum staffing levels during strike days for quote unquote essential services. And these essential services, um, that, that umbrella term encompasses quite a lot of uh, different professions, uh, including health. And, you know, it might be a bit cynical, but my suspicion is that in the NHS, if the health secretary were to set minimum staffing levels on strike days, they would probably be quite similar levels to normal days in the NHS, which would essentially make a strike redundant. Or if we did go below that, it would risk our jobs. Mm. And so if that's true, and it is a big if, but if that's true, then this may end up being one of the last chances we get to take industrial action in this kind of way with the possibility of enacting change. Mm. And so, you know, if not now, when, I suppose, would be the, the question. Uh, are we about to lose, um, if not the right to strike, at least a lot of power in our ability to take industrial action? 
And that's a really scary thought, especially when we think, yeah, again, about the whole history of industrial action and all that it's achieved over the years from, I guess, both a secular and a Christian viewpoint. And the thought that this could be our last chance or our last most meaningful chance to do so. Well, then you're like, well, why not? Why not chuck everything at it? We're all really aware that the NHS needs a lot of TLC, as we've already said, We've had paramedic strikes, we've had nursing strikes, maybe the whole MDT should strike in order to get the NHS the attention it needs, regardless of what the specifics are. Mm. Mm. Cool. Um, We're coming, I think, to the end. Um, But before we close, I think it is probably worth just doing a minute or two on uh, the idea of conscience, Uh, because I think ultimately this is a conscience issue rather than a moral issue. Um, I think it is down to individual Christians' conscience as to whether they strike or not, and indeed whether they vote for strike action or not. Um, the word conscience uh, in the Bible uh, is quite a big theme. Uh, the Greek word for conscience, uh, sunedesis, occurs 30 times in the New Testament. And as Christians, we are called to keep our consciences clear. So um, Acts 24, 16, uh, Paul declares uh, in front of Governor Felix, I strive always to keep my conscience clear before God and man. And so we are to keep our conscience clear, both when people are watching and when people are not. Um, and so we need to decide what is, what, how, how do we best personally serve Jesus in this particular situation? And we also, I think, need to be respectful of people who make different decisions to us. Um, and I, I have to say, I think that is particularly important when thinking about people who choose not to strike. I mean, we've talked about how uh, kind of brazen the BMA um, letter is um, in its kind of command for us to vote yes. And you can imagine the peer pressure um, people who don't want to strike will be under. Mm. And that's before we even get to crossing the picket line. Like Mm -hmm. I've never crossed a picket line before. It must be really scary and really difficult. You get some awful looks. You probably get some rude comments from your striking colleagues. And on top of that, when they get into work, they'll probably end up with a greater workload uh, because there are less staff. And I think we need to be alert to that as Christians. And I think that is one way that we can be um, distinctive as Christians is to be really respectful and kind to the consciences of our colleagues and particularly those who choose not to strike if we have chosen to strike. Yeah, I agree. And I think going back and forth and back and forth in decision making around strikes, I've, I've pictured myself as, you know, being the only junior doctor turning up to my hospital. And yeah, I think uh, for anyone that does do that, it's likely to be a minority and it's likely to be an incredibly stressful time. Um, and I think as well, again, one of the motivations in in chatting about this today, which is recognising how much chat there is around this, right? I mean, I'm really confrontation avoidant but I cannot avoid it you know it's it's in the staff rooms I'm getting emails about it every day friends and family who have nothing to do with the NHS it's 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 coming up now in general conversation oh have you voted do you know what you're going to do is your department striking all these kind of questions (laughs) and I suppose we can all recognize we have the same hope and this discussion has been a stimulus to work out your your own reasoning and, and which which side your conscience falls on in conversation with God and with fellow Christians, 
you know, 1 Peter 3.15, always be ready to give an explanation to anyone who asks you for a reason for your hope. We recognise that we all have the same ultimate hope. And and that's what's amazing about CMF. And that's why we can do this podcast and openly discuss this. And we hope this discussion has been a stimulus to work out your your own reasoning and, and which which side your conscience falls on in conversation with God and with fellow Christians. As Ben's just said, this is a secondary issue, but one that requires an awful lot of thought and an awful lot of prayer. It's a decision that has to be made. Like we can't yeah. decide not to decide. We have to decide, are we going to strike or are we going to not? Exactly. But it is a secondary issue and we need to be united on the primary things. Yeah. So thanks so much for listening. Uh, we hope it's been helpful in some way. Uh, to kind of wrap up, we've mentioned a few resources uh, throughout our chat. Ben, you need to jump in if I miss any out here. Um, one was a book by John Stott, Labour Relations, Issues Facing Christians Today. I'd also really recommend CMF have done a few resources about this issue in the past. Yes, they're from a few years ago now, but the principles are still the same. So there's a 2015 CMF file, Should Christian Doctors Strike? And there's a 1999 CMF Triple Helix article, To Strike or Not to Strike? And um, we'll put links to all these in the episode description. Ben, have I missed any? Uh, no, I don't think so. Right. And maybe it's just worth saying as well, Ben and I are hoping to produce more CMF podcast episodes in the future that examine other sort of cultural moments in healthcare through a Christian worldview. Uh, we'd love any feedback on this episode and any suggestions for further topics. And it won't all just be a, a massive group uh, therapy exercise. Yeah, I'm going to tone that down next time. <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> Thanks, guys. Thanks for joining us. You have been listening to CMS First Incision Podcast. If you're new to the podcast and like what you have heard, you can subscribe through all the usual podcast apps and feeds and check out our back catalogue for episodes. And if you can, uh, please take a couple of minutes to rate and review the podcast uh, on your chosen app. In addition to being helpful to us, it also helps other people discover this podcast. Uh, That's all from us. Uh, Until next time, stay safe and God bless. Thank you.